Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC, and this episode is a Pillar and Ground Questions episode where we seek to provide biblical perspective for today's pressing questions. Today we wrap up our seven-week emphasis on the 12 statements that were established by the PCA's Ad Interim Committee on Human Sexuality, a report that was you've heard has been overwhelmingly received at the 2021 General Assembly. I'm so thankful for these 12 statements as we wrap up our time thinking about them. I love the clear biblical doctrine, and I love the promotion of pastoral considerations and care. I think uh, both truth and love are incorporated into each of the solid and helpful statements, and what is most important, I think they are faithful uh, to the scriptures, so I'm very thankful for that. Today, we have statements 11 and 12. Statement 11 is on friendship, and statement 12 is on repentance and hope. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Statement 11 on friendship because I'd like to have us come back in a future podcast episode to address uh, more deeply the issue of friendship and singleness in the church. I think it deserves its own episode and emphasis, so we'll be doing that uh, at a later date. But let me read the statement and make a couple of comments on friendship. We affirm that our contemporary ecclesiastical culture has an underdeveloped understanding of friendship and often does not honor singleness as it should. The church must work to see that all members, including believers who struggle with same-sex attraction, are valued members of the body of Christ and engaged in meaningful relationships through the blessings of the family of God. Likewise, we affirm the value of Christians who share common struggles gathering together for mutual accountability, exhortation, and encouragement. Nevertheless, we do not support the formation of exclusive contractual marriage-like friendships, nor do we support same-sex romantic behavior or the assumption that certain sensibilities and interests are necessarily aspects of a gay identity. We do not consider same-sex attraction a gift in itself, nor do we think the sin struggle or any sin struggle should be celebrated in the church. This statement is unique among the 12 because the affirmation um, is the pastoral side, while the nevertheless is the more doctrinal theological guardrails, and that's unique to the statements. Typically, the doctrinal theological guardrails are in the affirmation. The pastoral side is in the nevertheless statement. But one of the things I think I want to highlight out of this statement is that the church really does need to admit and repent about that statement, that we have an underdeveloped understanding of friendship that does not honor singleness as it should. Quite frankly, one of our biggest gaps that we face in ministering to those who have sexual struggle, particular same-sex attraction, uh, homosexuality, Uh, gender dysphoria. We do not have a compelling uh, vision for community, often in the church for singles. Uh, We have an emphasis often on families, covenant families and kids and marriage. But when it comes to being single uh, in the church, you can far more feel like an outcast, like an outlier, like you haven't actually arrived. Now, think about that as a sexual struggler who's single. Where is your community found? Does the church provide a compelling place for friendship, for community? 
Now contrast that with something like the community of the LGBTQ world. And you there, you're a believer, you're struggling with same-sex attraction, and you're looking for connection, for friendship, for community. And here are your options. The church or an LGBTQ group or community gathering. One is going to offer you welcome, acceptance, a place, value. But often the church does not offer that. It asks you to clean up before you show up. It makes you feel lesser than, particularly even if you are a faithful Christian struggling with same-sex attraction, you have not seen God deliver you from the orientation. You do not believe marriage and becoming a heterosexual in marriage is going to be part of your future. Thus, your life of obedience and fight is a life of singleness. Now, where do you fit in the church? Quite frankly, the church's failure to address issues of sexual struggle can easily be connected to our failure to create compelling communities for those who struggle and those particularly who have a lifelong calling to singleness. We are not a very compelling community for people in that fight, and we have a lot of ground to make up. That's why I want to have an episode in the future exclusively uh, related to singleness, the church, and God's calling, and how we can do better. So the statement on friendship is very helpful. It acknowledges things that we need to excel in better and our failures. As we think about our failures in that area, statement 12 moves to repentance. And I want to first talk about the affirmation statement, and then we'll touch on the nevertheless for joy because for the three parts of this statement I really want to emphasize are the call to an entire life of repentance, the call to particular repentance, and the call to rejoicing. So first, we affirm that the entire, this is repentance and hope statement 12, we affirm that the entire life of the believer is one of repentance, or we have mistreated those who struggle with same-sex attraction or with any other sinful desire, we call ourselves to repentance, or we have nurtured or made peace with sinful thoughts, desires, words, or deeds. We call ourselves to repentance, where we have heaped upon others misplaced shame, or have not dealt well with necessary God-given shame. We call ourselves to repentance. I want to talk about repentance, since that's the emphasis. And this is really for all. This isn't about people that are struggling with sexual sin called to repentance. This is for all of us. The call to an entire life of repentance, as Martin Luther said in his first of the 95 Theses, the entire life of the believer is one of repentance. And the Westminster Confession of Faith 15, 1 and 2 says this, Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. The doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. By repentance, a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sin, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sin as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. Repentance requires at least three things. So we're thinking about this call in statement 12 that all of life is repentance, the entirety of life is repentance. Let's think about that and know that repentance involves three things. First, it requires a thorough knowledge of what's wrong with us. 
If you study Psalm 51, David's psalm of repentance after he has sinned with Bathsheba and against Uriah, you'll notice uh, in the first five verses, he uses three different words to describe what's wrong with him. He says, have mercy on God according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. That's verses one and two right there. He says, transgressions, iniquity, and sin. In verse 3, again, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. In verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So he uses these three words. And when I say repentance requires three things, first, it requires thorough knowledge of what's wrong with us. Those three words build a thorough knowledge of what's wrong with us. The first is the word transgression. Transgression simply means insubordination. It's flagrant sin. It's, it's when I know precisely what God forbids and I violate his command. I do it anyway. It's willful rebellion. Um, it's a deliberate substitution of my will for his. And that's true of every human being. We are transgressors, insubordinate. But there's also iniquity. Iniquity is infection. It's a permeating uncleanliness. It's, it's sin staining everything, my desires, my words, my thoughts, my actions. I cannot escape the stain. I am twisted out of shape. Uh, so iniquity is infection. It's not just something I do. It's infecting all of who I am, desires, words, thoughts, and actions. But sin is incompetence. I fall short of the standard of God's character and law. My full, I have full knowledge that my best effort, my best intentions fall short. I miss the mark. I fail to live as God wants. And thus, omissions are wrong, but also uh, commissions. It's both and. And so when you start to see this is what's really wrong with us, you begin to repent even deeper. And here's what's wrong with us. We're insubordinate, infected, and incompetent transgression, iniquity, and sin. But then you have to understand, like David, repentance requires understanding what I deserve. So first, it requires thorough knowledge of what's wrong with me, and then it requires understanding what I deserve. Verse 4 of Psalm 51, he says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Repentance requires understanding what we deserve. To understand what we deserve, we have to understand the direction of our offense. And David says, it's against you and you only, God. Now, you may think, but you've sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. How can you say against you and you only, God? And that's because what David is saying, before we ever sin against anyone, we sin against God. Before David committed physical adultery with Bathsheba, he had already committed spiritual adultery with his God. Sin is always primarily and first against God. Tim Keller says all sin is primarily an exercise of lordship that we do not have a right to. We act as if we own ourselves. Martin Luther said that we don't ever break commandments 2 through 10 unless we first and foundationally already decided to break the first commandment. Our sin to know what we deserve, we have to know the, the direction of our offense. It's against God. We have to know the definition of what's offensive. Verse 4 said, I have done what is evil in your sight. That's key to repentance. 
We call evil as God sees it, instead of the folly of calling wrong right. Our conscience and our culture is not our guide in repentance. At the end of chapter 11, what David had done was evil in God's sight. In repentance, we agree with God about what is true. We, we agree with what he says is wrong. What makes sin sin is that it grieves and offends God. And so we must understand the offense as against God and against his word. And using God's eyes and God's word as our standard frees us from being a slave to our own passions and of human opinion. And so to really understand what my sin deserves, I must understand its direction, it's against him, it's definition, it's what he calls evil, and what the deserving punishment is. And in verse 4, he says, you are justified when you judge. God is just, and the wages of sin is death, and sin is violation of covenant. It removes us from God's presence and blessing. So the first two things that when the statement says... uh, We affirm that the entire life of the believer is one of repentance. Well, repentance requires a thorough knowledge of what's wrong with us, transgression, iniquity, and sin. Repentance requires understanding what we deserve. And to understand that, you've got to understand the direction of your offense against God, the definition of what's offensive, evil in his sight, the deserving punishment for offenders. He's justified when he judges. And as you get that, third, repentance turns away from sin and sorrow to God through Jesus. Chad Van Dixhorn beautifully says true repentance not only comes to hate sin but also to see the savior this is really very important for us to understand as we consider what god thinks of sin we must also consider his mercy to sinners after all he is the one who spoke through the prophet joel urging his people to return to the lord your god for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love and he relents from sending calamity as we consider god's mercy We will further grieve and hate our sins, but we'll turn to him in hope and faith. So that opening line, I don't want to underestimate the magnitude of it calling us to all of life as repentance. What that means is we're not just talking about repenting of sexual sin. The entire life for the Christian is repentance. More and more understanding our transgressions, our sin and iniquity. More and more understanding and having sorrow for offending the God who loves us. More and more understanding that sin is not just about breaking God's law, but breaking God's heart. More and more understanding there is mercy for sinners in Jesus Christ. That's our life. And when the church lives that life together, there'll be a rich community no matter what the struggle Now, there's also a call, number two, not only to repentance, but to particular repentance. The statement uh, really emphasizes uh, three particular ways that we believe the church has failed. Uh, Westminster Confession 15.5 is one of my favorites. It says, men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. That's a great sentence. Repent of your particular sins particularly. General repentance is not the full call of repentance. We have to be particular. Thus, we need to pray the prayer of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I got to tell you. The church really does need to pray that prayer of Psalm 139, particularly concerning how we have dealt with these issues of sexuality, same-sex attraction, and homosexuality. 
The church needs to ask God, search us, O God. Know our hearts, try us, know our thoughts. Related to people who struggle with sexuality, homosexuality, same-sex attraction, related to that, oh God, would you see if there's any grievous way in us? And would you lead us in the way everlasting? We, the church, need to have a posture of repentance when we consider how we're dealing with these issues. And the statement repents particularly in three ways, of which I'm thankful. One is mistreatment. Where we have mistreated those who struggle with same-sex attraction or with any other sinful desires, we call ourselves to repentance. And we do. We repent. Look out, press ways we've mistreated those who struggle with same-sex attraction or with any other sinful desire we repent it secondly calls for particular repentance concerning compromise where we have nurtured or made peace with sinful thoughts desires words or deeds we call ourselves to repentance wherever we have nurtured or made peace with sin we repent And third, a particular repentance is wherever we've delivered misplaced shame or withheld God-given shame. Where we have heaped upon others misplaced shame or have not dealt well with necessary God-given shame, we call ourselves to repentance. Where we have been arrogant and delivered misplaced shame, we repent. Where we have been cowards and withheld God-given shame, we repent. I really appreciate the call to particular repentance in statement 12. And then it ends with a call to particular rejoicing. Hear this. These are the last three lines, three sections of this 12 statements. First, we give thanks for penitent believers who, though they continue to struggle with same-sex attraction, are living lives of chastity and obedience. These brothers and sisters can serve as courageous examples of faith and faithfulness as they pursue Christ with a long obedience and gospel dependence. One particular reason for joy, we have many courageous examples in the fight out of love for Jesus that are denying their flesh and fighting against their orientation to the glory of Jesus Christ. Courageous examples in the fight are among us in the church, and we give thanks. That statement also says, we also give thanks for ministries and churches within our denomination that minister to sexual strugglers of all kinds with biblical truth and grace. We rejoice and give thanks for ministries and for churches who are committed to ministering to the sexual struggler. And might I say, we at Lookout Prez long to be that place that no matter what your struggle is, and if it's a particular struggle of sexual sin, We long to be the place that can bring to you biblical truth and grace, hope and repentance, love and welcome in the name of Jesus Christ. And finally, I love the final note of the 12 statements. We rejoice in the gospel. Most importantly, we give thanks for the gospel that can save and transform the worst of sinners. Amen. Older brothers and younger brothers, tax collectors and Pharisees, insiders and outsiders. We rejoice in 10,000 spiritual blessings that are ours when we turn from sin by the power of the Spirit, trust in the promises of God, and rest upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. The last note of the 12 statements is an absolute rejoicing in the gospel. 
The gospel indeed can save and transform the worst of sinners, of which I am the most. The gospel has power. The gospel is a gift. The gospel is our joy. In the midst of these difficulties of wrestling with these very hard issues, in the midst of struggling with sexual sin and these very difficult battles, we rejoice in the gospel and together let us rest upon Christ alone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pillar and Ground. We look forward to future episodes together with you. Thank you.